Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. David, good to see you, man. Yeah, how's it going? It's going. It's back to rain and rain, but hey, you know, well, here we let's are. Catch a can in the winter. Yeah, but it's a new year. It's a brand new year. I'm excited. You know, the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we put 2020 behind us. 2020 vision. But oh man, what a year that was. There was an awesome thing that happened in 2020. What's that? We started this podcast. Oh, right, dude. right, right, right. Yeah. So from the ashes, the phoenix rose. That's right. That's right, man. No, it's been it's been fun. Uh, I've been learning a lot, man, and uh, it's it seems like I'm cracking the books all the time, man. And uh, you know, I'm, I've been doing a lot of walking, Dave, as I do here in the pandemic, and sticking yeah, I was to myself. Say something about the the COVID five. The COVID five. Yeah, What's that's, that? the, that's the five pounds everybody has gained. Oh, right. Well, I'm trying to keep that at bay, man. But uh, but yeah, no, I've been walking and uh, I was down on, uh, I have my little path. You can pretty much, I, I would be easy to trap, as a friend once said. I kind of have my path that I do. <laughs> so here well, it comes. Wait, wait, wait. What, what's the bait? What bait would it be? Would it be a paleo book or maybe a cheeseburger? A uh, cheeseburger. A cheeseburger <laughs> down at the end of the breakwater. So I walked down to the breakwater and I'm thinking about all this and I saw ravens and crows right next to each other. And I took a photo of ravens and crows. Oh, oh, oh I want to see that because I always thought they were the same species, right. just named differently. Same genus, different species. Brachyrhynchus right. and Corvus corax. But anyways. Kazoontite. So I, I, hello, I saw them there next to each other. And there was a pickup truck with a bunch of stuff in the back of it and stuff. So the ravens and the crows were kind of getting along, raiding it. But then... For some reason, I was thinking about George Steller because there was also a Steller's J. Do you know about Sea Cow? Do you know about Steller? Yeah, yeah. There's a Steller J, Steller Sea Cow. Yes, and a... he was an Arctic. He kind of was an Arctic explorer and an Arctic. He took advantage of the Arctic, didn't he? Well, I would say the <laughs> the uh, he died at the age of thirty-seven. He was a German fellow who went along with. He was hired by the Russians. He volunteered or whatever. Ended right. up on the on the boat with Bering. And right. this is in to seven... find the best trapping, right? To find the best well, otter, uh, the best resources. They, the Russians, also had a clue that they could get to North America. You know, from you know, I wait. You know, this Italian guy found uh, found America. If we just sail east, perhaps we will run into America too. So this is in the 1740s. Oh, and so all these names. So I was thinking about the Stellar J. All these names come from the. Get this, the guy works for 10 years. He finally gets to go on the boat. They do run into North America. They go ashore on Kayak Island near Cordoba. And get this. That's up by Anchorage, up by Anchorage. Yeah, and they have only the the captain of the boat, Bering, he, he wants to just go. But he says, all right, the naturalist really is dying to go ashore. He wants to go to North America. He's like, he's going to set foot. He spends 10 hours on the island. In that 10 hours... 
he names all these species, including, and along the way, actually the 10 hours, he names a number of species. On the trip, he names the Stellar Sea Eagle, the Stellar Sea Lion, the Stellar's Jay, the Stellar's Eider, the infamous Stellar's Cow. And as I'm walking down, this is a true story. I'm thinking about George Stellar, you know, I'm, tell, I'm talking to you about it. And I hear this, and I looked oh, over. whale. And it's a stellar whale. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a stellar sea lion, man. It's the first one I've seen oh. in a while. Seriously, and this is the weird thing that happened. But then the other day... But sea about, lions are common in in Ketchikan area. Well, but the stellar sea lion, which is the cousin oh. of the California sea lion, you know, has been actually on the endangered species list. But the, northern, the southern uh, population seems to be doing okay. Right. But... Have you ever heard about Stellar's sea ape? Um, yeah, somewhere deep in the recesses of um, rabbit holes I've, I've dug into. But if I'm not mistaken, isn't the Stellar sea ape the dugong that was originally no, no, no. named a Stellar sea cow? No, the Stellar sea cow. Which are extinct, by the way. Yeah, actually uh, 27 years after he first described the sea cow, which they the Russians basically ate them into extinction. Yeah. They were very yeah. tasty. They're young and big and slow and lumbering. On August 10th of 1741, there was a creature right. that followed Bering's boat and Stellar actually study this creature, and he describes it as a sea ape. Yeah, yeah, I remember something about that. And it goes around the boat for like two hours or something, and he writes great descriptions of it, and it's got this little round head, and it's very quizzical, and then he decides, well, I'm going to shoot the little f***. <laughs> and collect oh. him. He gets the rifle out, shoots, and the the creature disappears, but then it comes back. But then... Years later, like everybody's been all the speculation, what was this animal that he saw? And I'm telling you, man, I was looking off the dock the other day and I saw a creature amongst the ducks and it was a little head that popped up and it wasn't a sea lion. <laughs> it was not a sea lion. I know it was it was too and was not a seal. Right. It was too big for either one, but it was like this little orb that popped up. And it right. seemed to have a long tail. I was thinking, God, is that a wolf field or something? And, and I kept right. following it and taking pictures. I took pictures. There's a little bump. And then also years ago when I was down in wait, California. Wait, what is it? Tell me, tell well, me. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell. You but, said you have pictures. Well, I do. And there's a little bump. And I, and I, I walked down the dock okay, well, again. Okay, wait, hold on. Are the eyes uh, like a human? Are they in the front of the face Dude, or are they side of the head? I kept putting my glasses on. I couldn't get close <laughs> okay, enough to it. Okay, wait a minute. No, I'm, so not, here I'm you not making are, this old, up. An old man without his glasses. <laughs> that's, that's the classic well, uh, ghost story. But I was also on a boat off the coast of uh, Southern California near Santa Barbara with Kirk Johnson. Right. And uh, when we were working on the Fossil Coastline book, and we were there uh, on the boat, and this guy, the captain's name of the boat was Joe. Who cares? Cut to the chase. Come on, you got to be excited. He he describes seeing this monkey creature, and there were a lot of people that were on the boat. (sighs) He described it. So I did drawings of it. So, anyways, I'm not a cryptozoologist, I'm not into that stuff. Yes, you are, Ray. You really do believe in that stuff. 
I'm not. I'm not a right. you know so, Sasquatch okay, back guy. Back to Stellar. Did he describe so, it having hair? Did he describe it having, you know, no hair? What, was the eyes in the front of its face were on the side? Like a, he said, it was ape-like. It was very curious, quizzical. Yeah, and people okay. over the years have thought maybe he was actually looking at a very skinny sea otter or perhaps yeah. a fur seal. Right, without his hair. But there are other people, and there have been other sightings. But anyways, yeah, okay. This show is about science. Well, you know what? I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm gonna file that in the Bigfoot, <laughs> in the Bigfoot file there. It's so cool to be living in this place, man. Ray, I'm so excited today, and I'll tell you why. Why? If, if you if you listened to our first episode, my paleontological moment as a child was. Seeing a bird, well, it was it was a sad moment, but seeing a bird, a robin stuck in the tar at, in Hancock Park at La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah. My dad used to take us there as kids before the George C. Page Museum was, was finished in 1975. So I'm talking about the early 60s. Hey, you know, uh, talking about that bird that you saw, it was kind of a disturbing thing. I was watching... The seagull. I was watching. Was it a seagull? Our next guest uh, works at La Brea Tar Pits. And they did a video. There was a, well, a video. There's and some they're, news they're guys to, yeah. do, doing a story on it. And he's, he's like, I wouldn't want to be that bird. And they close up. It's a seagull stuck in the tar. <laughs> and it's alive. And it's flapping. And you're like, oh, my God. It was so sad. Yeah, look away. Look away. I guess maybe. I wonder if they have a, a, a rule there. Just like, let the birds be. Because if you go in to well, save it. Of course, it, you have to. Yeah, you have to. But how do we know that jerk didn't throw it in there for his shot? The camera crew. <laughs> the camera crew. Mm. Well, let's get to anyway, the bottom of this. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm very excited uh, for our guest, who is Reagan Dunn. She's a paleobotanist, right? She's a paleobotanist. She studies plant life and what she's at this big tar pit that catches all these animals. But apparently... But she works at the George C. Page yeah. Museum. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, She's a botanist, so let's try to do some botanical questions right. for her. But man, there's so many cool fossils there. I am so excited. Um, how? How should? Let's just call her, eh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have thousands of hours at that museum too. Really? Literally thousands. Oh yeah. I've. I would not only visit it myself with my son Carson, but I would take out of town guests there every time someone would show up. So. My numbers are, are in the hundreds. And what is amazing is it right in downtown Los Angeles, man, right there. Hollywood, really Hollywood, yeah, yeah. Miracle Mile. But on that note, let's give uh, Reagan a call. Let's do that, man. Hey, Dave, meet Reagan Dunn, assistant curator at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, she's a paleobotanist and a paleoecologist. Reagan, it is so good to see you again um, and meet this ventriloquist guy. <laughs> good to be here. It's so nice to meet you. The La Brea Tar Pits is like my comfort museum because it's my earliest memories of paleo anything. So uh, I'm jealous. That's your office. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. And for so many Californians, that's the case. I hear it all the time from from professional paleontologists and others. So. It's quite a place. It's been inspirational for so many. Yeah, well, I think it's um, welcoming. It is easy to understand. You, you, you walk, you smell the tar, you walk by, you see the outdoor pools, and then you go in the museum and all the bones are stained brown. Exactly. La Brea Brown, we call it. 
I'm a East Coast guy, so you know, y- y'all are West Coast. Uh, I guess that's where you get your uh, your first uh, impressions with paleo, your first introduction, especially the Southern Cal, SoCal. So, uh, Dave, don't you have a question to clarify things here at first? Um, a, a question? Oh, um, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> what, what question? Hey, Reagan, are you a paleo nerd? Oh. <laughs> Are you a paleo nerd? Are you one of us? I am so glad, too, that you asked. Of course I'm a paleo nerd. I've been a paleo nerd since uh, probably two thousand or 1999, I guess. So, long time paleo nerd. Long time. What you, was there a turning? But what's your background story? Where's, where did, you, where did your well, nerd come from? How did it start? How, what, yeah. what made you a paleo nerd? Well, I, I kind of knew that there was this thing called paleontology, but I didn't know that that was a job that people actually did. Um, I was very interested in archaeology. I think a lot of paleontologists sort of start out in archaeology and anthropology. Um, An undergraduate at Colorado State University, I was studying cellular and molecular biology with a minor in anthropology. And so I went to field school at an archaeological site in Nebraska called Hudson Mang. And uh, that's a paleo-Indian site, really cool place, bison bone bed. 600 bison that had been bloating and rotting and and then subsequently buried. And so I spent an entire summer in a unit squared, scraping millimeter by millimeter of sand. And uh, so... What was the date of this kill? It's about 9,500 years old. Oh, right. So is that where the paleo bug kind of bit you? Something happened to you in 99. That's right. So that was in 1994. Okay, so... Um, I graduated and was working in molecular biology labs for a while, working on maize genetics. And so the field work for maize genetics involves going out to the cornfield and doing some uh, cross-pollination studies, bagging shoots and pulling anthers. So you guys have, if anybody in the Midwest has probably done some detasseling in their time, it was a lot of that kind of work. And detasseling. I thought, yeah, detasseling exactly. of corn, but that's that's to prepare it to eat, though. No, it's to remove the the male reproductive parts from the oh, top, so that okay, it doesn't. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. Educate me here, because I detassel when I shuck my <laughs> corn to to make dinner. So there is a uh, some sort that's of called a... husking, man. Yeah, oh, those are the corn huskers. Oh, These okay. Are... So yeah. so you're talking about some sort of sexual thing happening here? With, yes, with corn? it's sterilizing the males, basically. Sterilizing oh. the plant from being able to broadcast its pollen just wherever it wants. Um, and so, so you oh. can control, control breeding um, right. in certain varieties of corn. You just don't get decalb number 339 and plant it? <laughs> yes, that's right. If you're, you know, if you're trying to get just the right mutation, you have to be very careful on on what, what pollinators are allowed to um, wow. swing their pollen around. You know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know guys like that. Um, <laughs> so, but, so you grew up in Colorado, and you, you're off into plant biology in a big way, and you end up on a paleo site, and I'm still, there's, there's, a, there's a Kirk Johnson degree in here too. Oh, right, there? yes. So after the cornfield, I decided that I wanted to try some other stuff. So I was working seasonally and being from Colorado, as a lot of Coloradans do, you go off to have your your ski time. So I went up Uh to Steamboat Springs and I was a ski instructor. And in the summer, I was a raft guide on the Cachalapooter River 
And so I did that for about four years. And then Kirk Johnson saved me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what happened? Kirk Johnson is the uh, director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History now. He was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science for a good 20 plus years. And so you got you crossed paths with uh, Dr. J somewhere along there? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a funny story. Um, my father is a dentist in Denver, and it turns out he's the dentist of many paleontologists at the Denver Museum, <laughs> including, okay. including Kirk. So my dad was kind of concerned about my life. What was I doing? I was skiing and rafting and having a great time, <laughs> loving it. <laughs> but I wasn't using that, that biology degree. And so he thought it was time for me to get serious. And he asked, we had dinner one night and he asked, Hey, you know, so where are you going with your life? What are you doing? And oh my. what do you like? What do you really like? And I said, well, I like plants and I like evolution. And he said, great. I have a patient who's a paleobotanist at the Denver museum. And next time he gives a talk, I'll get tickets and you can come down and we can go to one of his talks. He gives great talks. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So I thought, okay, dad, whatever. Okay, okay. So (laughs) I'm going to try this on my daughter. Okay, all right. I like this talk. (laughs) So a couple months later, my dad calls and says, hey, I got tickets. Uh, My family had been members of the Denver Museum for a long time. And, you know, that's where I had my first experiences in natural history as a a five-year-old. Like many scientists, they get inspired at museums. And so that was my story. Um, So we... Kirk was giving a talk. My parents and I had a nice dinner. Um, I went to, we went to the auditorium at the museum and I thought for sure this was going to be the most boring talk ever, right? Like paleobotany. Yeah, but Kirk is great. Kirk is a (laughs) real good talker. He makes you sit on the edge of your seat. Absolutely. So, you know, Kirk came out and he had his slides. He would just, um, go to a file cabinet of slides, pull out a couple slides really quickly, have in his mind what he wanted to talk about, um, put together just a brilliant talk, you know, and he would do this in about 15 minutes. And um, I've, I've seen this. I've actually done many talks with Kirk over the years, and I was stunned when I would go to the, the Denver Museum. There'd be 300 people in the auditorium. And 10 minutes before the talk, he's still, in the old days, putting slides in the carousel, and then boo. Exactly. So Kirk talked about the Castle Rock Rainforest. Mm. One of the world's oldest rainforests, about 63, 64 Where? million years old, in Colorado. So right off I-25 near Castle Rock, Colorado. And it's just this amazing site. With, um, so this is a post-KPG? Yes. Co- this is right after the event? Yep. And it's really unusual for a Paleocene leaf site because it was incredibly diverse. You know, there's something like over 152 different taxa known from that site. And that's just astounding considering most other Paleocene sites, leaf sites in that area have about 10 to 15 species per site. So Castle Rock really sort of blew everybody's mind. Um, But Kirk was talking about that. And I grew up there, you know, I I passed that road cut a million times growing up. I had no idea that there were all these amazing fossils right under my feet, right where I grew up until Kirk's talk. So he showed the fossils from Castle Rock and then showed pictures from the Amazon, from Moesir Forte's boat, right? And And the three of us have that experience in common. Yeah, all three of us have been down the Amazon on his boat, yeah. And so he had me there. And uh... (laughs) Now back to Castle Rock. Castle Rock is a rainforest 
that uh, survived the extinction or or is a result of the extinct of the extinction event the dinosaur killing asteroid uh well it's we don't have the best cretaceous record in the denver basin to be able to answer that question but it does look like it's just a, a sort of a brand new flora you know it's a brand new association we're not sure where it comes from maybe it has some uh, central american taxa but also some asian um, affinity taxa so it's um it's sort of mysterious how it got there, uh, but its preservation, it's um, it's a Lagerstatten quality locality, and um, it just occurs. This these high diversity plant localities occur right along the front of the the Denver Basin, so closer up to the mountains. So there's this idea that when you get to the base of mountains, you have these orographic um, climatic changes. You might have some fertilization from sediments coming off of the of the Rockies as well. So you have these just really diverse um, sites. And that's totally different than when you get out into the plains, you know, you go east of Denver, 50 miles, and you're looking at a totally different sort of flora out there. Yeah, but it could be geographically... Uh, like a refugium kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see redwoods only grow on the north slopes in very misty conditions. Yeah, could be something uh. like that. You know, something about... The soils and the... I've been to the Castle Rock site with Kirk because I stumbled into the life of Kirk Johnson back in 93. And one thing led to another. And we ended up doing a book. And one of the first places we went was to uh, the uh, Castle Rock Formation. And I got to dig there. I'm assuming you... He brings a lot, legions of people out there to be leaf whackers, as he says. And, um, and but Dave, this is a site that's uh, Paleocene, Eocene, right around in there. But it's... Just Paleocene. Early it is Paleocene, mm -hmm. early Paleocene. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things I realized when I hung out with Kirk too is that the asteroid, when it hits 66 million years ago, it doesn't just take out the dinosaurs and the ammonites and the marine reptiles. It affected the entire world, and the plant diversity in the late Cretaceous is pretty, pretty diverse. And then the asteroid hits, and there's pretty much nothing after it. And then the ferns appear. There's the fern spike, and then suddenly this rainforest is there. Reagan, how many millions of years is it? Well, Castle Rock is, you know, two at least two million years after the KPG boundary, okay. and so that's that's quite a bit of time to reassemble. So the Paleocene is fifty-six million to sixty-six is ten million years. Yes, sixty-six to fifty-six. That's right. And you are doing work uh, right now. You're actually doing a KPG extinction plant thing. And you said in your an email, the last minutes of the Cretaceous. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's one of our favorite extinction events, right? It's um, what makes it so cool is that really it's the only time in geologic history where you can put your finger on a single day in 300 different sites worldwide. You know, wow. that's 66 million, 66.04 million years ago. And that's just incredible. And what that allows us to do is to um, study what happened in the very last seconds of the Cretaceous. So what was the vegetation like? And then what happens at the event? So you have all this um, hell breaking loose, this catastrophe. And then right after it, what happens? You know, what does the forest look like um, in those subsequent years? You know, minutes to years, what does the forest look like? Is it gone? 
the debate rages on if there were wildfires, extensive wildfires at the KPG or um, ignition from, from all the material that was coming down, all this like pizza oven hot spherules, et cetera, shock waves. Um, what were the effects of the nuclear winter that followed because of all the, mm -hmm. the sulfates in the air and uh, the particulates in the air? And so that's, that's kind of what we want to know. And um, sort of in, throughout my paleobotanical development, I've become really interested in reconstructing forest canopies and uh -huh. the structure of vegetation. And so through all the different places I've worked and different projects, I kind of have become a little bit annoyed that we don't have a way to understand what the forest actually looks like, how dense the trees are, how much foliage there is, you know, because how much foliage there is determines everything. And that determines the amount of area there is for photosynthesis, the amount of area there are for bugs to land on, um, you know, how mammals navigate in forests or, uh, or birds and all these kinds of things. So the structure of vegetation is really sort of a, a key thing that, that I've been trying to understand and get a handle on better for paleontology. And you came up with the kind of a revolution, you and your team, your colleagues came up with a revolutionary way to calculate some of this forest density and the phytoliths. And Dave has been diving deep into it here, <laughs> but can you, that's I'm right. an artist, he's a ventriloquist, you're a scientist. Can you explain to us what that means? How how are you able to figure out that in Patagonia, what the environment was like all those millions and millions of years ago? It turns out that there's a big difference that sunlight is everything for plants, right? And so plants do all kinds of things to, um, to, to get more sunlight, to, to seek more sunlight out because sun is their, their food. They really need that. Um, and so they have all these different adaptations and morphologies that result from the amount of exposure that a leaf gets during its development. Mm -hmm. So if there's a, a leaf growing in direct sun, the cells will, um, well, there'll be higher leaf vein densities, there'll be more stomata, the pores that exchange air and gases, um, they'll have thicker, much thicker leaves. So you can go out and feel a sun leaf, and it's really like leathery. And if you feel, go out into a tree and then reach underneath into a shade leaf, you'll feel that the, the shade leaves are just more delicate. They're thinner. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so their leaves are really responsive to the amount of light that they receive. And uh, they have to be, you know, they have to balance um, water loss with air exchange. And that's sort of the, the battle that plants have all the time. And so these adaptations are a way to do that. But anyway, so if you zoom in to the surface of the leaf, the skin of the leaf, and you look at all the little cells that make up the skin, the shape of those cells, the shape and size, is a result of how much sunlight that leaf received during development. So in a sun leaf, 
the, the cells, individual cells, will be much more um, simple in shape, more like stop sign shaped or um, more just much simpler. But if you look at a shade leaf, even from the same tree, those cells will have these really ornate or undulate sort of more puzzle-like shapes, puzzle piece-like shapes. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you mean convolutions? Like, convolutions, uh, absolutely. Because they're dehydrated, possibly they're desiccated. Uh, no, it's just that these are those are for the shade leaves. So they're right. growing and growing, and they don't have this high exposure to the sun, so they have more time to, you know, just relax. And the cells are just sort of lazy and elongating out, and they can become more sinuous in shape compared to sun leaves that are like, bam, getting hit with UV really quickly. So they have to harden up and uh, reinforce. So if you see a lot of shade leaves, you can infer that it is a dense forest? That's right. Absolutely. Wait a minute. What if it's growing in the lee of a mountain? Mm. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, you will also have, they will get a lot of sun also. It's a relationship between all the taxa that you find in a certain locality. Right. Right. So it's sort of a summation um, of all the leaves that fell to the forest floor. And, and then there's this relationship that you can demonstrate. If you go out to uh, modern environments, even places on mountain slopes, which I've done in Costa Rica and, and Ecuador and other places, you can grab a little handful of soil, extract both the, the phytolis, which we haven't really introduced yet, And and also like the little leaf cuticles, the little leaf fragments um, from that, measure the cells, analyze it, and then relate that to how many leaves there are, how much shade there is in that environment. Wow. So you can reconstruct the structure of the canopy just based on these tiny little fragments that you find in a handful of dirt. Well, I have a lot of questions about phytoliths, but uh, Ray, do you want to know what a phytolith is? I do, Dave, because I'm in the dark here, Well, there are these Like a shade leaf. Uh, um, oh, see what I did there? Okay, um, and stop me if I'm if I'm wrong, Reagan. Absolutely, she will. Um, so plants, when they absorb nutrients from the soil, they absorb non-organic material, and some of that gets stored in the leaves as silicate, or calcium, or even opal, and they form in the shapes of the cell. It's kind of like um, little tiny tumors, kind of, but not really. But they form in the shape of the cell, then when the plant dies, those do not decay and they last for millions of years in the soil. And there's all these different shapes, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I wrote this down. They are not species-specific like pollen. Now, identical phytoliths are produced by many species of plants and many species of plants produce multiple types of phytoliths. So they're really hard to pinpoint as to what actual plant they came from, but you're able to infer the type of ecosystem they came from. Absolutely right, right, Dave. Yeah, you nailed it. Hey, you're up in Ojai, right? Maybe you can come down and and, uh, count some phytoliths. I think you're primed and ready. You've done your research. All right, yeah, I did, I did. And and Ray, they come in some awesome shapes. Some of them are called quadrilateral, wait, quadrilateral, quadrilaterals. Saddles, they look like saddles, horse saddles, and dumbbells. 
Good God, I think you need to have, uh, you should give a lecture with Reagan. You, you're, you're on it, sir. I could. After and that's from counted... memory. That's from memory, except for the little Whoa. bit I read. Yeah. You can memorize those lines. <laughs> but I have a question, though. I have a question, because this is really uh, weird, back to the lab, which you probably work in. It says, matrix samples were processed with acids to remove carbonates. This is to find the, the phytoliths in soils. Uh, let's see, oxidized to remove organic materials, sieved and then gravimetrically separated in a, in a um, what do you call that? A centrifuge. A centrifuge, right? Yeah. Thank you. To yield the three to 50 microfarad fractional pieces. Yeah, just right? tiny little things. But here's what it says. Matrix samples were mounted on slides using melt mount. What's melt mount? It's gotta be something in microscope world. It is, it's just a commercially available mounting medium. So it's like a oh, plastic. Okay. Right, and right. Uh, made by a Cargill company, and uh, it has the right visual qualities, optical purity oh, so it, oh, right, to see right. the the phytoliths, and so you. Can I didn't want to Google it. I wanted right to ask one. you. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So uh, Reagan and Dr. Strassman, if I may. <laughs> um, so you're doing. You're at La Brea, where of course everybody goes there to see all the giant mammoths, the giant ground sloths, the short-faced bears, the lions. And you're working on plants. What's up with that? What are you? What are you doing? So, the, are you doing this phytolith analysis? But wait, there? I have a question about the phytoliths, and I, and well, it was this will lead to that question. Okay. So, so if phytoliths are not specific to species, and the same plant could have different shaped phytoliths, how the hell do you know what the ecosystem was like with all this just jumble of shapes and sizes and phytoliths? How do you know? Well, I gotta tell you, phytoliths have a really steep learning curve. It's um, it's a hard science to learn, right? And it takes it takes years. And uh, I was lucky to work with one of the one of the best phytolith workers for my PhD, and that's Dr. Caroline Stromberg at the University of Washington. And she's really developed these techniques in deep time. The archaeologists have been using phytolith research for for a while, you know, since the since the late I think seventies is when you um, can find them on teeth. Exactly. But guess where the first phytoliths were described? Um, hold on, hold on. The first phytoliths... Oh, hi, California. No. <laughs> uh, the first phytoliths were described um, on on teeth. Weren't they on teeth? Nope. In, where, in does, the, uh... where is everything oh. in biology sort of oh. uh, first described uh, to from? Or... To toilets. <laughs> the the Petri dish. 1859. Does that... Age oh, ring Mr. Belfry, Mr. Yes. Mr. Darwin. <laughs> that's right. Yes, he collected Chucky D. That's right. He collected dust from the sails as they were sailing across the Atlantic, um, and it turned of out it was Cape a, Verde Islands. Yeah, and it was a lot of um, you know dust off the Sierra, but in that dust were particles that um, the Darwin sent the samples back to England and. They these weird particles were described, and um, and they knew that they were from plants, and so that's really the first description of of a uh, phytolus plant silica. Charles and they Darwin. look like they're made of glass. They almost look transparent. They pretty much are. Yeah. Have you seen opal? The opal ones? Do they look opalescent? Well, it's just called bio opal because right. it's the and that's just sort of the the term for this particular hydrated silica. Um, and so ah. they, but isn't opal from organic material anyway? It's uh, yeah, mostly, yeah. It's silicified 
organic materials. I love the name Fidelist, Fightin' Fidelist. I could see the sort yeah. of teen jersey there, but what are you doing at La Brea with the Fidelist? Nobody's looked at the plant fossils there. Are you the first one to really sort through all that? <laughs> well, you know, everybody is totally shocked when they learn that there's a, a, so many plant fossils preserved at the tar pits. And you would never know when you go into the gallery because you see all the spectacular mounts, you see the dire. Oh, wait wall. a minute. No, no, no. And then there's Th a there tiny is, little there... box of plants in the corner. <laughs> no, no. There is an open window of three or four scientists sifting through those microfossils. You can see them there. Right. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And they do find plants but, in there. But as far as like the exhibit gallery The goes, main exhibits, right. It's mastodons and sloths. Right. I mean, direwolf skulls. Right this way to the leaf gallery. What? <laughs> yeah. Come to the phyllith right. gallery. You know, it just doesn't yes. get people all excited. <laughs> to the saber-toothed cats, man. But, <laughs> I but get what it. is cool, what, what, so what's the work you're doing there? Tell us. Yeah. So there's lots of, of different work. First of all, I had to just, you know, hopefully find if there were phytolists preserved in the asphalt because nobody had really looked for that before. Mm. And since this is a big part of my career, when I was hired um, by my boss, Luis Chiape, I was uh, really crossing my fingers, but I couldn't guarantee that there would be phytolists preserved because they don't oh. preserve everywhere, right? And so I was able to get samples sent to me before I started work and before I ordered the microscope that I was going to be using at the tar pits and uh you know just whew, i process those samples put them under the microscope and thank god there was good preservation so what are you going to be able to tell from that there's tons of them right so you can do so many things with this first of all at the tar pits we we don't have a good idea of what the what the environment was like so what are preserved for, as fossils are mostly seeds and wood um, and there, there's great pollen too, but that pollen work is, has just really been going on over the last four years and, and nothing before that. And so there's a record of, um, plant taxa, right? So you have tons of juniper seeds, juniper seeds are the most common fossil that they're plant fossil that there is, and probably juniper wood too. And there's a, a great deal of, of really big logs that have come out of the pits. Okay. So I'm just telling you what's in there so then I can tell mm -hmm. you what we can do with it All and right. uh, what's interesting. And so there's tons of acorns and um, and leaves. There are perfect leaves preserved in the asphalt. It's unbelievable. And they come out. How old are these? How old are these, Reagan? These are between roughly around like 45 to, say, 10,000-year-old plant wow. fossils and um, just dated a, a tree recently that's, you know, like 47,000 years old. And oh. that's right at the end of carbon-14. And the leaves are just perfect. So what do we want to know? Well, first of all, we want to know what plants grew there. Okay, so we're developing that list. We want to know how what the environment was like. Was there, mm -hmm. how much grass was there? You know, grass fossils, mm. are, they just don't really preserve very well. You might, there's a couple seeds that we have um, in the collection. But phytolists will give us a lot more information about the grasses. So, um, Dave, as you mentioned, phytolists aren't very good taxonomic indicators. You can't always tell what species they come from. But the grasses do have really diagnostic types. So you can break down um, the, the phytolists grass phytolists into pretty well-defined groups, especially when you have really good modern um, plants that you can sample. And so the plants at the tar pits are modern, right? The, the, these fossils are 
of modern species that still exist. So we can run around California, go collect grasses and have perfect modern representations. Check their phytoliths. Yeah, and so I think we should be able to get some pretty good identifications. But aren't grasses recent? Aren't, aren't grasses Cenozoic? Yes, yes, they're definitely Cenozoic. They're, although they are, the oldest grasses are Cretaceous. Really? Yes, and it's I thought grasses evolved from uh, munching mammals. <laughs> no. Well, so the There's story. a relationship there. Let me just kind of jump ahead in a way with where some of your work, one of the big debates and the La Brea Tar Pits is like the perfect place to see this. There's the debate, was it climate change that killed off the megafauna or were there humans, did the humans come in in North America and kill off the megafauna? This, and this debate is all raging people stake their careers on it and what are you going to be able to kind of sort this out with your work with the plants there at La Brea? Yes, I hope too. Um you know, if if not at La Brea, there we can get other other paleoecology records around California and try to understand that better. What we can understand really well at the tar pits because there are so many bones and and examples of individuals that we can radiocarbon date is we can get a much better idea when these things disappear, you know? And so all you have to do is pour in a bunch of money, get a bunch of radiometric dates, and then, you know, you can learn so much more. Just Yeah, sure. Exactly. It's so the money part, I see. The oh. money part, yeah. So there's been an ongoing project to, and this this started before I got there, and this group is, um, is great, and they just have a ton of uh, radiometric dates. And so we're focusing in on that time interval to get a much better idea of when the extinction really happens. Okay, so that's like the first step. When does it happen? And then you have to go and look at the plant records at that time to see if there's congruence. You know, does the plant record change also at that same moment in time? And so um, that's what we're in the process of doing. You know, I won't weigh in on the on the debate yet, but I'll just say that, yes, I think we can definitely help, help try to understand better well, I have a question about that. Cool. Is, is it true that the deposition of, of the animals at La Brea Tar Pits, there are no complete skeletons, that the bones over time just get jumbled into this huge matrix of, of non-articulation? Or are there articulated skeletons? There are articulated skeletons. So there's a different kind of depositional processes going on at the tar pits. One is the classic pit, tar pit, right? The seep comes up through through the older strata. And it's really asphalt, not tar. Exactly. Oh, thank, yes, thank you for this. Right, <laughs> it's not tar. It's asphalt. It's asphalt, yes, asphalt and asphaltic sediment. Um, asphaltic so, sediment, I like that. Exactly. So you have the asphalt coming up to the surface as it does, you know, like every day in the park, it bubbles up and um, we're lucky we don't lose more children in the soccer fields out there. But <laughs> I like that you put the green cones out there, so don't step in the green cones. And the gooey yeah, zones. I wandered around, and, and uh, yeah, and someone always takes a stick and wipes it all over the cones, <laughs> and all over the trees, and all over yeah, sidewalks yeah. and cars. You know, you just can't. That is gooey stuff. It is messy stuff. You can't have nice things at the tar pits. <laughs> So tell me about the de uh, the deposition and the articulated and non-articulated. Yeah, that's right. So um, in those kind of classic pits where you have the sticky surface, the animals will get entrapped and then 
die and then other animals will come in and want to eat those animals. And, and eventually they all kind of sink into the tar, into the asphalt, excuse me, and uh, decompose all the, the soft bits decompose and you're just left with the bones. And then over time, those get all jumbled up and disarticulated because you lose all that connective tissue. But then in other parts of the park, we sell, we have sort of more typical deposition so like regular floodplain processes where a oh. skeleton gets buried um, by floodplain sediments, but then asphalt secondarily penetrates that sediment. And so that's where we do have some, some oh. old skeletons, um, especially many of those came from the site where the Page Museum is now. It, when it was built in the 70s, evidently they had to do a big salvage operation because there were a lot of fossils where the museum went. And so those are in huge jackets sitting in our warehouse. That is so cool, too. The big the big boxes that you're still going through, the giant boxes. Those are different. So that's a different project. Oh, that's a different thing. Yeah. Oh. That's a totally different thing. You're building a museum about the animals in the tar, and you find animals in the tar under where the museum's supposed to go. Right? I mean, maybe they should have just left them in the, in the ground and... Yeah. Put a hole, a cement hole. The in art the museum is where they found all the boxes. And there's a museum being built right now for the uh, film arts, right? And they're yep. also finding tarpet bones there. Yep. So as uh, a curator there, you are frequently part, you're, you're talking to the media. We were talking about you uh, talking to a, a reporter recently, and there's actually a seagull that gets stuck, you know, while the cameraman is there. They Why did put he that put seagull that there? seagull yeah. in there on purpose? <laughs> did he Just... do that? No, he didn't. He would not. I won't tell you what we do with those animals, but... Um, well, I do kind of want to know. What do you do? Do, do, you, do you have a policy of, like, don't free the animals, or do you just let nature do what it's been doing for 40,000 years? We we let nature do its thing. I mean, typically by the time you find a, a squirrel or um, an animal that's been entrapped, a bird, it's it's too late for them. And we don't want to horrify the public, so our excavators will, will go out push there them and, down. and push them down. <laughs> Um, I told you, you actually... wait, I told you I saw a bird. That was my thing when I was a kid. Yeah. I Changed. saw a robin and I and I saw a robin dead in the tar and I and I it just totally connected. That's when I went, Oh, that's how it happens. But there wasn't a predator on top of the robin. <laughs> I'm wondering, has anyone ever had to be rescued at the pits? There are rumors of, of that. And, and, you know, sometimes when our excavators have to go out there and uh, say um, rescue somebody or pick up trash or, or push down a seagull, then they... We excavator as a person, not, not a machine. Oh, yes. Our excavators are people. Right. Yeah. People wearing, wearing boots that are easily you can step out of. That, that's a good, that's a good ah, uh, footwear. The escape mechanism. But there are there are rumors of people that have been help me. <laughs> well, that's why we fence them off. But there are <laughs> there are rumors of of that in the wow. past, and um, so our excavators have had to ha seek assistance before because they have been you know sort of temporarily mired. But we haven't lost any yet. back to grass for a minute. Dave, you're bringing up the evolution of grass. People don't realize that grass is pretty new in the old fossil record, and you've worked on fossil grasses, right? Have you not? 
Yeah, you betcha. Because, um, you know, it's grasses make up 40% of Earth's biomes today. So they're a pretty big deal. And they're everything we eat, right? All the grains. They're really important. The monocots. I was studying up on monocots. We eat rice, corn, and wheat. And those are basically modified grasses. Am I correct? Man, you guys are really impressing me with your plant knowledge. Well, I just finished Hope Jarin's wonderful book, Lab Girl, <laughs> and I was taking notes all along. So Okay, great. Uh, well, monocot and dicot are the two major groups of flowering plants. And what it refers to is a, a cot, is a cotyledon. So they're monocotyledons and dicotyledons. And a cotyledon is just the first embryonic leaf. So when you plant oh. a cucumber seed and it sprouts, what does it look like? Yeah, that first little leaf comes up. Or it's got two leaves, right? So that's a, oh. that's a dicot. It's got the two leaves. Oh. Dicot. And when you plant a corn seed, what's the first thing that comes up? The one leaf. Oh, one monocot. Leaf. Oh, it's so easy. There, that was easy. Oh, <laughs> All right, so uh, grasses show up when in the fossil record? You said maybe the Cretaceous? Yes, the oldest grasses have been described from a dinosaur coprolite, of all things. Oh, fossil poop. Fossil poop, yes, from, from India, from the Deccan Traps. And, really? Um, yeah, it's very cool. There's grass fragments, whole grass fragments have been found in these coprolites and from lots of different groups, and those grasses are fairly well you know derived so grasses had been around for in the cretaceous the deccan traps are one of the largest volcanic features on earth where lava spewed all over southern asia right at the end of the cretaceous 66 million years ago in what is now india they erupted for 30,000 years covering an area well over 200,000 square miles to a depth of 6,000 feet the coprolite found there possibly from a large titanosaur sauropod is significant because it can be dated precisely and it contains evidence of the first grasses from the phytoliths found in that fossilized dinosaur poop. It's very cool to think that one's last meal can be preserved for all eternity and that scientists can learn so much from it. And that'll make you think twice next time you're eating corn. Please correct me if I'm wrong, which I usually am. Where did I read that grasses were some of the first plants to evolve the adaptation to be able to be their top half eaten by a predator or animal, but their roots remain, giving them the ability to re-sprout and grow again? And what was that book about North America, that fantastic book, uh, Ray, about the history? It starts at the KT event and, and talks about... Um, uh, eternal, yeah, uh, frontier. The yeah. Eternal frontier. Is that uh, the the Aussie uh, author? Yeah, yeah. Eternal frontier, and he said that grasses were uh, uh, an adaptation in response to millions of herbivores. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it you know probably started with dinosaur herbivores, at least these dinosaurs. And um... there's actually been this talk of uh, dinosaurs invented flowers, right? <laughs> Bees, bees invented flowers. No, 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 that's a theory out there for sure. No, Dave <laughs> Reagan, there's actually a theory, right? Dinosaurs and their their appetites and flower. It's this war really between the plants and animals that's been going on for 400 million years here, right? This relationship. Sure, yeah, this 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 coevolutionary arms races. Arms races. Yeah, called. I love that word. Yeah. And uh, you know, my favorite 
arms race story is about the the grazers and the grasses okay this is like the best story of coevolution ever told that's kind of like what i was talking about right but i have some bad news for you Uh it doesn't (laughs) always work like that you know the more we learn the more we we learn that things are more complicated sure um these simple ideas um are are more nuanced so there's um you know certainly the case that in North America, I hate to blow everybody's, you know, impressions of the, the greatest evolutionary arms race, but the story between the, the grasses and why phytoliths evolved in grasses in the first place, there's this idea that they, these, these silica bits, these little sandy grains are in grasses to prevent herbivory um, by grazers or by herbivores. So like, you know, the, the rhinos and the horses and the camels and um, oreodonts, those were sort of the major North American grazers during the, the Cenozoic. Um, and so grasses have evolved this adaptation to put silica in their leaves, and then the animals respond by growing ever higher and higher tooth crowns to eat the Because grass. they're gritty. It's like eating sand. That's right. It's like eating sand all the time. Like, you know, when you get... Sand on your salad, it's the worst, right? <laughs> you really have to wash your <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we So you're poo-pooing this, this co-evolutionary... The story works in some places. It works in right. North America. So grasslands evolve about four to six million years before these animals evolve these really high-crowned teeth, these hypsodont teeth, okay? So grasses precede the evolution of these high-crowned teeth in North America, so the story holds together, right? It's it's great. The the grasses make this thing and then the the animals respond by these ever growing teeth and then um this race goes on. But a high crown teeth gives you the ability to chew more grass or chew more less grass wear for, for a longer time and you can have more babies and that's what it's all so about. It's and you can wear more of your teeth away right. and still be able to chew. That's so, right. but in South America, things are different. But in South America, things are different, and this is a, it's a fascinating story. We, when I went to go back for my PhD to, and I worked with Dr. Stromberg. This is what we wanted to test: this big hypothesis about the world's earliest grasslands, which are were rumored to be in Patagonia, because in Patagonia, in the South American fossil record animals show these hypsodont teeth evolving very early, like 38 million years ago. And that's about 20 million years before they do so in North America or Eurasia. So it's we're, the Eocene. Yes, it's the Eocene. And so we, we're thinking that we would find the world's oldest grasslands, and grasslands must originate in Gondwana, uh. South America. Um, so we went to go look for these. Like real open habitat grasslands, okay? So that's where these the phytoliths come in to tell their story. Um, so we don't know exactly what species a lot of the phytoliths come from, but you know the grasses. You know what kinds of grasses. They're definitely grass. Definitely grass. And then you can tell other things like uh, palm trees. Palms have really, really classically unique, beautiful phytoliths. And then dicots, you know, just like the woody plants, um, those ones with the two embryonic leaves, <laughs> the woody plants, you know, they have a certain type. And ferns, you can kind of tell. You can put them into these big classifications. So anyway, we went down to this place called Gran Barranca in Patagonia. And it's about 45 and a half degrees south. And it's um, 
just a beautiful site. It it looks like Nebraska, right? It looks like the White River Formation. This mm. is down in the oil producing areas of Argentina, and um, it's just fantastic. And so we went to this site because it's it's um, has the most continuous section of South American mammal fossils known. So the the South American land mammal ages are described from this site. It's kind of like a a Rosetta Stone site. Wow. And there's just tons of volcanic ash. Okay, so great preservation. Exactly, great preservation and great opportunities to get radiometric dates from those ashes. So we have really good age control. And ash has been coming off the Andes and spewing across South America for a very long time, for all of the Cenozoic, certainly. And so like the second you step out of the car in Patagonia, you know, your hat blows off and um, it's the windiest place on earth. (laughs) (laughs) You're just squinting all the time and trying to keep your mouth closed because you get so much grit in your mouth just when you're standing out there. Did you grow high molars <laughs> while you were there? <laughs> so what so did you find? Like, you didn't find... Indication, right? It's so windy and so gritty. Okay, from dirt. You didn't find grass, though. So we went down there, we sampled, and we sampled, and we sampled, and we looked at these samples in a lot of detail. And there's grasses are present. These grass phytoliths mm. are there, but there's not a lot of them. Not many at all. And definitely not enough to to constitute a grassland. So we had to interpret these environments really differently. So we thought that they were sort of foresty environments. These animals must have been eating um, forest plants with lots of volcanic ash was one of our ideas. But the other thing that we couldn't sort of say was that it was totally open habitat. And instead of like a forest, it were these woody plants were shrubs. And that the palms were more like, a, you know, like a palm um, shrubland. Mm. And so that was our big problem in trying to reconstruct habitat structure. So how are the plants arranged on the landscape? Is it a forest or is it totally open? And so this is where I really came around to this idea that we needed a way to reconstruct the forest canopies. And that's where sort of that, that whole um, idea originated. So long story short... Um, after we developed the method to be able to reconstruct the forest canopy. I saw a documentary where you used fisheye lenses to photograph the forest canopy in a 360-degree view. Yeah, that's right. and And that gives you the ability to see the density of the canopy. Yes, exactly. And from those photographs... We measure a a variable called the leaf area index, which is the area of leaves per area of ground. Okay, basically, it's how much leaf area is above you compared to, you know, the meter that you're standing in. And that's what you'll find in the fossil record. Bingo. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) your conclusion was, in the end, that this was... It's it's just amazing. Our conclusion is is that um, Patagonia was foresty in the, in the Eocene, in the, in the early and middle Eocene, very forested, you know, like pretty dense forest, probably north of Vegas or southern beach forests. And then through time, it eventually opens up, opens up, opens up, and then it's totally open. Guess when? You mean what day? Thursday. <laughs> 30, um, 
8 million years ago. Okay. So 38 that's, million. That's really when you start. It's the exact same time that you see these animals evolving these high crown teeth. So, I mean, the story. Ah, so you have a smoking gun. Smoking gun. Right. So there's very but few that's grasses. In, but wait, that's South America, though. South. Yep. That's South America. Now, was South America, North America, and the Eocene kind of separated as they were? They were all yes, the, all the continents pretty much have broken up by the, uh, the end of the Cretaceous. Yeah, South oh, America yeah. was isolated uh, for the most part. Oh, through the isthmus was gone. It, it hadn't formed yet, so it was it was isolated continent. There were there had to be a separation from Antarctica and southern South America, and that starts occurring. You know, that's occurring in the in the Eocene, late early Eocene, um, about fifty million years ago. You have the first signs of the the Drake Passage being opened up and then south america is like what that's what they call the panama what do you mean the drake panama? so that's the one down on down in the south oh, oh between antarctica and the tip of south america exactly because they were connected for for a long oh. time period for you know all, all of gunwanan time right when does North America and South America hook back up via Central America? When does that when is that joined again? Well, it, another great controversy. <laughs> you know, oh. that age fluctuates. It, it was thought to be about um, two and a half million years ago. And, Only then. But wow. now there's a suggestion that it was happening earlier, um, as, as early as 10 million years ago. So in the Miocene. The Miocene. So somewhere in that range. So it's probably, you know, after, certainly after about 11 million years ago. And is that sea level rise or uplift or both? It's, it's tectonic, mostly tectonic. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. I want to ask a climate change question. It's kind of a Wait, dumb wait, wait, question. hold on, Ray. It's a hoax. Don't you know it's no, a hoax? I know. <laughs> I know it's a hoax, but, but yeah. So, so here's my, here's my thing is that the simple, you know, once again, I'm an artist. My friend here is a ventriloquist, a very sharp, he knows his phytolus at least. But uh, so animals breathe in oxygen and expel carbon dioxide, right? Amongst, we all learn amongst this. other gases, yes. That's right. Right. But, but basically we breathe it in, we, we expel carbon dioxide. We are burning a lot of carbon dioxide now, fossil fuels. Plants take in carbon dioxide and expel oxygen. So isn't the whole climate change thing? a really good thing for plants and they're going to thrive because there's so much carbon dioxide and the earth is going to turn into this one great big green place. What's the deal there? I, I love this. I love this question. Um, no, right? it's, a good, it's, I, it's a good question. I, it is a great question. And it's, um, you, you, we call that carbon fertilization, right? And so the, the, since plants eat carbon dioxide, all this increased carbon dioxide is going to be awesome. And we're going to yeah. grow so many plants and the food is going to be so abundant. And What's the worry? Yeah. There's another That's gas. Good. There's another gas in the equation and it's called methane. <laughs> but there's some problems well, with this. Okay. Okay. So what happens when you get carbon dioxide is you have the greenhouse effect. And so temperatures go up, right? And when temperature goes up, if it's wet, and warmer, plants are fine. If it becomes dry and it's that much warmer, then plants get into real trouble and then they'll die and the landscape changes. And this is um, one of our questions that we've been asking up in Wyoming in a place called the Hannah Basin, where we've been looking at the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, the uh, PETM. Petum. 
That's right. It's it's uh, one of our favorites. Explain what that is. We've we've had it before on our show, but explain what it is. I'd like to hear your version. It's oh, so awesome. It, it's a uh, it is an awesome uh, aberration in Earth's climate, and it's the thought to be one of the best analogs for what we're doing today. And what it was was just a major carbon dioxide and methane burp about fifty six million years ago, and it was a, a short event. We think that the, all the modeling suggests that the carbon dioxide was emitted into the atmosphere, probably from volcanism under a, an oil field, basically, uh, up in the North Atlantic, that just released all the CO2, but over a pretty long... Because all the oil burned, right? Right. Basically what yeah. we do in our cars every day. Yeah. And our stoves. Volcanism caught an oil field on fire, basically, or many of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. Um and and so you have this massive release, but it's thought to have occur, occurred over a long time period, like three thousand to five thousand years. All right, so you know basically we're we're doing that in a much more condensed time period, yeah, like a century, a couple, yeah, like two hundred years. Um, so what happens? Okay, how long did that event last? It lasted about a hundred and twenty thousand years. When you have these really wow. this time of very high CO two, well, what happens? in the interior of the continents. And this has been a big question and because we want to know what, what's going to happen in the future to the interior of, say, North America, because in the interior of North America is where most of our food is grown. Um, so these are sort of problems. So if the interior is going to dry up because you have this change in the temperature, Earth's temperature, which then changes ocean circulation patterns, which then changes precipitation patterns, this is a big deal. So it's much more, you know, complicated. The, the relationship of carbon dioxide to plants in the atmosphere is complicated. Right. And so if you blast all the CO2 up into the atmosphere, um, what we're finding in Wyoming during the PETM is that things dry out. Forest canopy hmm. collapses. But how hot does it get in the summer? I mean, you talking a couple degrees or are you talking 120 degrees or... It just when you say petum, you mean it's just abnormally hot for a hundred thousand years. Not necessarily an August day in the North America will be scorching. Or yes. Well, you know, we're finding that now. It's getting hotter and hotter. We've had the hottest oh. temperatures, you know, out in Death Valley. Yeah. All those tourists going out yeah. there to experience the hottest temperatures, and it's and I can tell you, we're having one of the wettest summers here. So. That's uh... right, and you have. These major changes in precipitation all over. Some places get wetter, some places get drier. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we're trying to understand. So you kind of came to paleo, uh, sounds like later in life. You mm -hmm. weren't born a dinosaur-loving kid. You, you kind of came to it through the world of plants. Thank you for explaining some of these things. But you've done some digging. You've done some uh, a lot of uh, your, your paleobotanist. Now you're digging into the past. If you could time travel back go back to one period of time what period of time would you go to and what is the world that you would want to see and what would that look like can you take us there yeah you bet well um i really want to see the asteroid hit at the kpg oh but you know from a safe distance yeah yeah where, where do you want to be standing when that hits the old saying is uh, you want to be in a place where you say what was that exactly <laughs> You have to get there in advance, build a bunker, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so what do you want to see there? I want to see those last 
few or the, the first minutes, you know, what, what happened? What happened to the forests and, and how did those animals die? You know, well, hopefully like a, soon we'll see that site, the paper on that site that apparently shows the last day or the day of the event. That's right. What's that site called, Ray? Oh, what is that site called? Tannis. It's the one in the north. The Tannis site, the Tannis site, yeah. We're hoping to get him on the show someday, we'll see. There's actually been one paper, but uh, there's more papers coming. But So you want to see the great fireball, you want to see, because you're curious to see how it rolled out, um, or just, is this some morbid curiosity you want to see frying dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've never <laughs> been a huge dinosaur fan, so yeah, I want to see their <laughs> last. Okay, well, you know... <laughs> When Kirk Johnson, uh, Kirk Johnson kind of gave us a blow-by-blow -blow description of what happened with the sphere rules and the tectites raining down and the fire. And, and if you're a hadrosaur in Montana, when this thing hits in the Gulf of Mexico, you're toast. Is there evidence of large deposits of charcoal from this event in North America, from the forest burning? It has to preserve. You could have charcoal and then it just goes away in the dust. Is there that evidence? It's controversial. There's a lot of papers that say that there's not, and but in some places there does appear to be some. Uh, so I think it's in, and there's also geochemical signals that they're um, that go both ways. And so I think it kind of depends on on the the site that that is being looked at. You know, maybe Tannis will have reveal something interesting. That'd be really cool. Um, we're starting a project that's funded through NASA of all places to look at, at the event and the recovery afterwards. And um, unfortunately, we weren't able to get to the field this summer because of the pandemic, but we'll start this work in earnest oh. this coming summer. But um, it's, a, it's a great study. <laughs> yeah, actually, where great. are you going for that? Where, are you going around the world? Or? Mostly North America, just, uh, well, because most of the best terrestrial sites are known from North America, but it would right. be... It would be really great to get to New Zealand, to that site, and even Japan. There's a terrestrial site that could be really interesting. Yeah, you're talking about the KT Boundary site in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But part of our group are modern biologists, and they're going to be growing plants in, in post-impact scenarios, in growth chambers. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I think well, that would be really cool. cool. You know, cool. So they'll be exposing the plants to acid rain. They'll be uh, growing them in low light conditions and high CO2 and all these different treatments. And they'll grow ferns and then they'll grow other plants too that were some of the survivors across the boundary. So I think we'll gain a lot of information to try to understand, you know, what were the sort of the limits on, on plant growth. Wait, something scary here. Is NASA trying to find out post-apocalyptic scenarios? <laughs> well, you know, we want to figure out how to terraform Mars, for instance. True. <laughs> how do you rebuild? <laughs> so you are going to be you're going to be doing uh, you're going to be putting those plants through some good Cretaceous hell. It sounds like we're going to torture right? these plants and see how they do. That's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. So it's kind of a you know an all-encompassing approach, and then we'll also also be out on the site whacking rocks and really trying to find trying to find these ferns and what kind of ferns make up the fern spike we don't even right. really know that huh are you one of the leads uh, on this team yep one of the co-pis and there's wow um, cool there's A five what? of us five co-primary investigators oh never heard that before A co-pi
Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question here. Um, uh, Reagan, social media has propagated conspiracy theories and non-science, and users don't fact-check before they repost, and the last administration uh, was uh, idiotic in their messaging, and uh, their anti-science propaganda was maddening and frustrating to me at the least. But what advice do you have as a scientist for me and for the non-scientists, and how do we challenge these lies and opinions that aren't based on scientific fact? How do you counter this this din? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good question. I've I've found um, a couple resources in trying to um, help people decipher what's true and what's not true. And there's a, a great book out by Carl Bergstrom. Um, oh, yeah, um, I've heard of this. And it's called Calling Bullshit. It's wonderful, you know, and <laughs> it's uh, it it really sort of demonstrates sort of the, the new new school bullshit, which uses uh, facts and loosely and presents figures that are misleading, but it appears scientific, but it's not. And so like those nine are... out of 10 doctors who smoke recommend Marlboro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. Things like that and um, graphics that are really misleading. And so yeah. it's helpful to um, help people sort of be able to distinguish what's BS versus what's not BS and try to find the, the best resources. Um, and museums, obviously, like people should be able to go to a museum, a natural history museum, and know that they're, they're going to get only facts there. And I think that's a service that, that we can provide for the public. It's a place where, you know, listen, you guys are, you have busy lives. You don't have time to figure out what's BS and what's not BS. You need some resources that you can trust. And, you know, we can be those people for you. We can present our, we'll do the research. Here's what we found. This is real. This isn't real. Fantastic. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's kind of the approach that um, I think we can take as museum professionals and i'd like to see that go forward and you know how many kids come to the tar pits you yourself were yeah ha- you know heavily well every time it. i'm there bringing friends i was telling ray earlier that uh any person that visited me in los angeles that's number one you know destination but you are navigating through multitudes of school children so the outreach at uh the George C. Page Museum at the La Brea Pits are fanta- is fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Let me, hey, Reagan, as as part of your job at the museum, do you interact with the public? Do you get out in front and explain what your work is about? Or I mean, it's been a weird year, but... Yeah, exactly. And I wasn't there too long before the pandemic started. I've just recently started this position. I've uh, been there about a year and a half. Yeah, you know, we walk through and I uh, engage with the public as uh, as I come through. We have We do a lot of behind-the-scenes tours. And those mm-hmm. are mostly for, you know, groups that arrange ahead of time. That's a lot of um, school groups that can be university classes. It can be uh, groups of, of donors, members. We do a lot of members events. Um, and, you know, this year we've done a lot of appearances through digital formats, talking to school kids and schools and ask a scientist, meet a scientist and, um, different activities cool. in LA. So absolutely, you know, that's a big part of our mission. And hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have a brand new Tar Pits Museum. We're in the process. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. You guys are 
going to build a whole new one, right? Yes. We, so we've been funded to at least get the design um, made. And so we're in that Where? process. Where is it going to be? It, right where it is now. And so... Oh, you, you mean know, redo the, the George C. Page? Redo the George C. Page and, wow. and make some additions. Yeah, sort of reimagine the site. And I think we'd have a really cool opportunity to to redo the exhibits and tell a story. You know, tell so much has happened in the last 40 years since that that building was, uh, or almost 50 years. 1975. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Reagan, it has been a total blast reconnecting with you and uh, good luck with all your work that you're doing. And thank you for spending uh, an hour with us. And, yeah, uh, this has been fascinating. Yeah, and you know, uh, I'm so impressed that Dave and the Fidelists, it's just, wow. It's just, wow. <laughs> I know you guys so. are impressive. And, Dave, and uh, Ray, <laughs> I just want to say, you know, I first, I think my, my first became a paleo nerd, probably in, in uh, 99 She's or crying, 2000. Right? She's crying, thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to the museum gift shop at the Denver Museum and bought my first Ray Troll t-shirt, the, oh. the data, the data is in the strata t-shirt. That is in the strata. Ray, you have influence on people more than Absolutely. you know. You more than you know. I'm in a lot of wardrobes through the years, so uh, <laughs> and a lot of rag piles too in my house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks, Reagan. Dave. Th- no, that's, hey, that means that I keep recycling oh. your shirts, Ray, and I don't. I can't have the heart to throw them away. They're cleaning my windows when they get oh, holes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Remember that one, Reagan. Anyways, thank hey, Reagan. you so much. Yeah. All right, guys, that was super fun. Thanks a ton. All right, thank you. All right. Well, I was on the edge of my seat through that one. Yeah, it was really cool. You know, I mean, uh, La Brea Tar Pits and, and Fidelis. <laughs> it's a, it was a good combo, yeah. And, uh, no, she's very easy to, you know, hang out with and talk to. And yeah. uh, I, I love how we're, we are studying up t- so that we can impress our guests. You know, well, and talk talk intelligently uh, with him, and I gotta yeah. say, man, kudos to you. You you did your work, dude. Well, it's I, I think what it was is I didn't try to impress her. I I just went down the Phytolith Google, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading about what they meant and how they can they are markers for paleontological time. They're time markers. And uh, ecosystem puzzles, they solve puzzles. And so, I, I don't know, I really connected with a phytolith. And, and you know what? Plant biology or paleobotany has never really been my thing. I've always loved dinosaurs and I've loved geology. Because oh. <laughs> Kirk is, uh, oh, you know, gee, Dave, you know, I don't like dinosaurs. It's plants because you can find more of them. That's what Kirk Johnson well, always says. Well, you know, I've, I've endured 28 years of yeah. this now or something with Kirk. And he would always make the point, hey, when you look out your window, what do you see? You yeah, see plants. plants. You don't see a bunch of animals. Yeah. But Reagan made paleobotany really awesome. Really awesome. She did, you know. And uh, she uh, she opened our eyes to a few things. The evolution of grasses, monocots and dicots. Yeah, and, I'd never heard that before. And, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to actually, it really sounds like she's... Uh, on to some big questions, you know, uh, the Pleistocene extinction, what took out the megafauna? Was it the was it the climate yeah. or was it Homo sapiens? And when, and when they have those dates, you know, they'll be able to say, okay, the last mastodon skeleton in the La Brea tar pits is ten thousand four hundred and ninety years ago. I mean, they'll get it down to the to the decades, right? 
when it yeah, was yeah. that young. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of down to the decades, they'll probably get it down to the afternoon of the uh, great asteroid <laughs> hit. And isn't it kind of cool to think about the all those uh, the Cretaceous hell that they're going to put the plants through? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, is what cool. it's like in a nuclear winter. This is what it's like when the world is on fire. What and will NASA survive? is funding it, which is really scary. Actually, that is true. They're experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, there's why? some big... Why? Why? Yeah. Well, she says Mars terraforming, but I'm thinking it's going to be like, uh, how are we going to survive when climate change has destroyed uh, no. uh, you know, our ability to control co- crops? Here's a really kind of dreadful thought, but maybe NASA is actually sees the asteroid that is going to hit us. <laughs> and they want to real quickly, and they skip, and they know we, we've got about maybe oh. 15 years, and in that 15 years, we better study about what's going to happen. Would we survive an a asteroid hit? Would we? What we yeah, but do? here's the interesting thing. 70% of the planet is water. So you have to also take into account a an ocean hit. That's what happened. Uh, that's what happened to the Cretaceous. It hit in the ocean off of Mexico. The Chicxulub. Yeah, it did. It did, didn't it? Yeah. So, but, I, but wait, how do we know that wasn't a mixture of land and ocean? Then we don't really know. That's a shallow sea right there. But hey, that's enough of that. Let's talk. Let's yeah. find. <laughs> let's find some more people who know about this asteroid event. I want to talk. I want to find out more about that. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we'll uh, we'll keep going on that. I, I have a feeling we'll we'll be back to that topic. Maybe even the next person we talk to. All right, I'm up for that. Hey man, uh, signing off for beautiful, rainy as always. Catch again, oh, Alaska. Oh no! Man. Oh no! What? Are you a paleo nerd? <laughs> I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a grown man who still loves dinosaurs. Is that so wrong? Is it something to deplore? Huh? I ask you. Are you a paleo nerd? course <laughs> i'm right, a phytolith nerd now <laughs> all right ray signing off from beautiful oak heritage oak tree chaparral in ojai california signing off from beautiful ketchikan alaska by the sea here is mr raymond troll saying adios and dave strassman saying goodbye thanks for being a paleo nerd help us spread the word of science Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.